0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox Talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, December 5th, 2022, and it should be a very busy week for all those that cover baseball. It's the winter meetings, which technically started on Sunday as the crime dog. Fred McGriff was selected into the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Contemporary Era Committee. The White Sox had two familiar faces as part of the voting contingent, Frank Thomas and Kenny Williams. Barry Bonds, Roger Clements, and Kurt Schilling, they were the notables that did not earn enough votes to earn a nod into the Hall of Fame, so they are still left out. There's more to come in these winter meetings held in San Diego again. In this episode, we'll touch on the current rumors for key free agents and the latest trade gossip. We'll also ponder what the Chicago White Sox could do this week. They've been busy before in previous winter meetings. Could they surprise everyone by making a bold move? But first, the Chicago White Sox finally officially announced the Mike Clevenger signing and the details of his new contract. It's one year, $8 million, with a mutual option for $12 million for the 2024 season that comes with a $4 million buyout. Joining me to discuss this contract and how it could impact other White Sox moves is the managing editor of SoxMachete.com and the host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim! Clevenger signing is finally official. What do you think of the contract?
2: I like it's better than I did when he first signed it. Just after seeing like Matthew Boyd signed for one year and $10 million coming off a year where he didn't make a start. He threw it like 10 appearances and 13 innings. Um, Zach Eflin signed for what was it? 39 million. And, mm-hmm. uh, with the Rays, and, and whenever the Rays make a signing, that makes you think like, oh, they're, they're onto something. They know something about him, and the White Sox should have been in on it. But just based on the talent itself and the track record, Clevenger for one year and $12 million guaranteed, $8 million this year, not bad. Yeah, I, I think the concerns are still the concerns regarding him, but financially, I don't know if there's a better deal it's the same thing we talk about always when it comes to this pool of eight to $10 million contracts, like they might be good. They might be bad. They, they might be like James Paxton and never pitch for anybody. So it's like, you just have to more or less shrug and you'll hope you have the winning lottery ticket. And Clevenger seems like he could be okay. At least he's done the work. He's shown the ability to throw 110, 120 innings, which I think is not nothing.
1: Yeah. This is the shallow end of the pool when it comes to starting pitchers, right? $8 million, I hope you could throw a baseball mm-hmm. like that's what you're that's what you're getting for eight million dollars in the starting pitching market it is so expensive trying to sign starting pitchers these days and we'll talk about one contract in particular in a moment here but during his uh little press conference in San Diego because Clevenger still lives in San Diego so it makes it easy for him to meet with some White Sox reporters that showed up for the winter meetings and he mentioned that His right knee issues bothered him more in 2022 than coming off a second Tommy John surgery. So while the $8 million is not a lot of money for a starting pitcher these days, as Jim outlined, a $8 million contract to a battered starting pitcher is below market, but this mutual option is like insurance for both sides, I guess the White Sox will eventually pay Clevenger $12 million, mm-hmm. but they get extra budget wiggle room for this particular off season. Clevenger could really cash in. If he's healthy all season pitches, well, he could opt out of the mutual option, take $4 million from the White Sox and get himself another contract. So it's like a little nice little bonus for his next contract. Again, if he proves that he's healthy and he pitches well, but this knee issue, Jim, the White Sox already have one starting pitcher with the knee issue and that's Lance Lynn. So it gives me a funny feeling going into 2023 with
2: Clevenger. Yeah. And in Kopech too, Michael Kopech had the knee injury. So we've seen the White Sox uh, struggle with a couple. Uh, I think they managed Lynn's knee injury well enough. I think the jury is still out on Kopech, whether it was worthwhile for having him just tough through it and accumulate a full season or full season's worth of starts just to get that under his belt because it's been such a struggle for him to be available for a full season. So, yeah, I can look at that both ways. But, you know, when I wrote about Kopech's knee injury and the surgery and now, like, opening day is not quite guaranteed for him, you know, it's a case where if it were in isolation and we knew that the White Sox, like, you know, handled all other injuries relatively well and Kopech was just the one they thought needed to get some miles on his arm to just, you know, learn how to get through it next year, I'd buy it. With all the other injuries, they visibly mismanaged, you know, Luis Robert and Tim Anderson and Larry Garcia among them. You know, then that's a little harder to separate Kopech. And then when you know the injury or the, the injured pitchers that they signed in previous winters, Kelvin Herrera and Joe Kelly, you know, guys who were rehabbing from a known physical issue and hadn't quite proven Uh, whether they're all the way back yet. And, you know, Herrera's entire first year and basically his only year with the White Sox was a rehab attempt. And same thing with Joe Kelly. You know, he he was prohibited from back to back days till the middle of the season. That's, I think, what makes it a little bit harder to put blind faith in the fact that Clevenger will be 100 percent. And last year was the tough year, just because they tend to look at these you know, signings as almost like, oh, uh, like an as is box, like at an outlet mall or something like that, like the refurbished or, you know, dropped, but still okay. Um, just, you know, all the tags that are on it for saying like, you know, buyer beware, uh, you know, no returns possible. Now they tend to shop in those bins, uh, thinking that they can get a dust them off and be like new. And, and we've seen the white Sox struggle with that.
1: Yes. So the, the hope here is that Clevenger doesn't do anything during the off season, to tweak that right knee everything checks out when he arrives at spring training and he's healthy for opening day if he could do that that's great but as you also mentioned jim if something happens along the way during a spring training start if the knee starts barking on him man you got two starting pitchers now as you mentioned with michael kopech and i forgot about kopech's knee the white Sox have two pitchers going to opening day with knee issues I'm just bringing this up because I know this is December and spring training is going to start in a couple months. But this is something to pay attention to because the White Sox, for XYZ reason, never come away unscathed when it it comes to injuries during spring training. And and this is an area that, or a
2: particular player, that could be impacted. (laughs) It's like, it does put the... uh... Uh, Michael Conforto pursuit or non-pursuit last winter in, in a little bit of a funnier light when when thinking about it just like when you know he was unavailable like you know the White Sox should have been great sign me up for uh one arm Conforto but yeah it's uh it, it's it's kind of signing where you just have to see what the rest of the winter looks like and what Clevenger at eight million and being to you know able to backdate basically the final four million of the guaranteed 12 million to the 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 next You know, winter when you know Lucas Giolito comes off the books, and you know Lance Lynn might be off the books, and Yasmani Grandal just like there's some serious money coming away that the White Sox you know might not have to deal with depending on how this year goes. So that's really what I'm 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 looking at like kind of jury's still out until one we see if Clevenger can have a normal spring training because if he doesn't, then that's a risk of just like did you just light eight million dollars on fire or did you sign like two million dollars worth of pitcher for eight million like that's kind of you know, how you have to look at it if spring training gets off to a rocky start. But the the possibility is there, especially based on how much pitching costs to feel okay about it. The the quote I thought was funny uh, was he's talking about how Roger Bossard's mound uh, was what made him... Feel good about signing with the White Sox. And then that took me back to Tory Hunter uh, back when he was uh, doing his free agent tour. And he talked about, uh, you know, when he, when he visited the White Sox, he talked about like really liking guaranteed rate field or U.S. cellular field at the time because the grass runs true. And that quote always stuck with me because basically Hunter was just BSing everybody and really enjoying being courted by every team. And that was what he said for the White Sox the grass runs true. And so with uh, Clevenger, now it's the mound is, is the reason he signed or, or a big reason. He signed. We'll, we'll see how it goes if uh he takes the wrong step and the knee flares up on him. Let's see if they, the mound betrays him.
1: <laughs> Screaming, Bosser! <laughs> Pain. Uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. But Mike Clevenger officially sides with the White Sox so you can add him to your 26 man roster for the upcoming season. And right now, using the players that the White Sox have on their 40 man roster, building out this 26 man roster. And I'm looking at this from a payroll perspective. I've got the White Sox at about $171 million right now with their 26-man payroll. Depending on who you ask, the White Sox should have the same amount of payroll as last year. I say should because there's some gossip that the payroll may actually be at just $180 million compared to the mid-190s that we saw from last year, so if it's in the mid 190s the White Sox have a little more than 20 million dollars that they can add to their payroll, and that makes things some that makes things interesting. You could you could be pretty creative with that. Uh, but if it's closer to the 180, well, then the White Sox just have nine million dollars of wiggle room, and and that's a little bit tighter. Now we talked about how much starting pitchers are going for, and before we get into the latest gossip heading into the winter meetings, and there's going to be a lot of it a huge signing happened and Jim and I will give each other an air high five because we called this Woo. Jacob de signing with the Texas Rangers for five years, $185 million with a six year option, which could be worth another 37 million hot damn Jim. Texas does it again.
2: Yeah. And it's uh, something to see a team spend a lot of money, not get immediate results, and continue spending money. I wonder what that's like.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it must be nice, right? They spent half a billion dollars in the middle infield, and uh, they just uh, dropped a huge contract for Jacob DeGrom, and they got Martin Perez, who pitched really well for them, uh, on a qualifying offer. They still have old friend. Dane Dunning, and they're probably not done. They still are involved in the starting pitching market. And what's funny to me was that when they moved on from John Daniels, I I, I had the impression, Jim, that the heavy spending was going to stop, mm-hmm. that ownership wasn't going to continue going down this path of giving out huge contracts. And Chris Young takes over, and they hire Bruce Bochi. And the money's still flowing. They're still giving huge money. And with Jacob DeGrom, other than, unlike Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, which I think even though they're getting older with age, that you can mostly count on them to be there for the entire season, play more than 75% of the games. So I still think it's money worth spent. DeGrom is awesome. He's one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. When he actually pitches. This could be a lot of money Mm -hmm. for a hundred innings a season, Jim.
2: Yeah, you have to wonder what the insurance is like for you know that kind of annual pay if he's you know making, you know, I'm looking at last two years, 15 starts, and eleven starts, ninety-two innings, and sixty-four innings. He had 102 strikeouts against eight walks last year with the Mets, but it was kind of like a Liam Hendricks season almost. 64 innings. 102 strikeouts, 8 walks, 40 hits, 3.08 ERA. It just happened to be in 11 starts versus like the 60 games or so Hendricks would pitch. But that's that's kind of what you're looking at is a case where, you know, is he going to be just, you know, available? I think the structure is kind of fascinating in the sense that like, you know, five years uh, for a pitcher of DeGrom's caliber and, and you're looking at like 30 million, 40 million uh, in 24 and 25, 38, 37. So it's kind of like slightly front-loaded or at least like middle-loaded and then it, it eases up a little bit and that's kind of where maybe the pitching market's going a little bit I can imagine it's just high AAVs but maybe like they don't want to do like the nine or ten years that like a Garrett Cole would get maybe somebody like Cole could still command it if he were on the market versus DeGrom who's had these injury issues but I think you know I wonder when Carlos Rodan comes up for his turn signing if he might sign like a similar deal uh, just because it's it seems to make sense for teams, and players can't hate it getting paid, you know, $30, $40 million a year. Like, that seems to appeal to them. So, that might be like a case where if you're going to take that bite of the apple, you may as well, you know, even if the apple's like poison, just like, you may as well take a big bite. It does make some sense there, even if the chance for a flame out or at least like a, an underwhelming return is rather large.
1: I can't imagine right now how much Dylan Cease is going to sign for if he continues this rate that he if he continues his performance in 2022 over the next couple of years, Jim, and he enters free agency. What are we talking like? Six years, two hundred forty million. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the walk rates. Maybe forty million dollar a year pitcher. I mean, that's where we're going. That's where we're heading. Yeah.
2: Well, I think it depends on the walk rate with Cease. That's the one thing I think keeping him away from that tier of, you know, Degrom, you um, Rodon, yeah, this version of Rodon that we're seeing, Verlander in previous years, Granky in previous years when they were setting the AAV records. So yeah, I think Cease. You know is maybe one year away. Like if he takes one more step, he's in that tier of being that bankable. But right now I think the walk rates like, Oh, we don't mind if you walk 10% of your batters. Cause it allows us to lowball you a little bit, or at least yeah, just uh, keep your trajectory a little bit more in line with what we want to pay. So that's kind of how I look at it right now is like, he's he's in that uh, the, the white Sox like their flaws. <laughs> he's getting,
1: he's going to make a lot of money. Justin Verlander, I am sure is very happy with the contract that Jacob DeGrom signed. And uh, he might be signing this week. We'll talk about the latest gossip and rumors when it comes to free agents and trades. But a quick rundown of the winter meetings. Monday, there's going to be a lot of gossip and rumors coming out today. As the reporters are showing up at the Grand Hyatt in San Diego, right by the marina. It is a wonderful hotel. It's very nice. I never stay there, though. Though I always stay at the uh, Marriott Marquis. That's just a few hotels down. But a lot of reporters are... Shuffling around and a lot of information is exchanged on Mondays. Tuesday could be the big day. We may hear from Commissioner Rob Manfred speak about the upcoming season as he usually hosts a Q&A with reporters. Shortly after Rob Manfred speaks, and this is not a coincidence, Scott Boris will usually host his impromptu presser. Uh, the media scrum it's is impromptu improv. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the, the media scrum is something else. Having been involved in, in one in San Diego last time they had the winter meetings, it's it's something else. Uh, later that Tuesday night, the first ever Major League Baseball draft lottery will be held, and we'll have some details of the upcoming draft class when we'll know more about where the White Sox will be picking in the first round of the 2023 Major League Baseball draft. Wednesday is the Rule 5 draft. We'll have more coverage from the future Sox team for that particular draft. And we'll see if the White Sox are involved or if any other team decides to take, uh, select any White Sox prospects to add them to their 26-man roster for the 2023 season. So we promise we'll talk more about the gossip and rumors. And we're going to do that next after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: welcome back to the Sox machine podcast the best part of the winter meetings is how quickly rumors and gossip turns into news and on sunday there was some steam building up we learned earlier this week that pittsburgh outfielder brian reynolds has requested a trade and we know that oakland catcher sean murphy has been on the block but it appears a trade could be near and we might see aaron judge sign this week that would be huge news For the White Sox, they made news in the past during the winter meetings. It usually comes in the form of of trade, not big signings. Obviously, the Chris Sale and Adam Eaton trade to kick off the rebuild, the Jeff Samarja trade, Carlos Quinton trade, the Scott Pesedic for Carlos Lee trade before the 2005 season. Lance Lynn trade also happened in early December, but there wasn't a winter meetings because of COVID. So technically, that doesn't count as a winter meetings trade. But the White Sox have been active, and uh, I can't forget when I was there in the winter meetings in San Diego, the Steel Walker for Noah Mazzara trade. Who could forget that one, Jim? (laughs) How active
2: are you expecting Rick Hahn to be this week? I want to bet the over in terms of activity, but it seems like a lot of free agents have to move. To me, in order for the trade market to loosen up a little bit, like there's a whole lot of dollars that have to be committed to the shortstop class. There is a little bit of catcher activity that maybe the White Sox might be involved in. Maybe not Sean Murphy, but maybe if Sean Murphy goes somewhere, then uh, other pieces will fall into place. So... It does seem like they're they're not on deck yet. I think to me, like I could be surprised. Yeah, you know, I'm willing to be surprised. I would like to have an emergency podcast somewhere along the line for a major move. But yeah, I think you know if we're talking about like Liam Hendricks or you know some way to augment Yasmani Grandal behind the plates or maybe somehow move him if they find a taker or you know. You know, Brian Reynolds, I think, is maybe out of their reach a little bit. But just you know, when it comes to the moves that they might make, I think some of them have to be contingent on just player signing in order for teams to figure out like who's available, what market rate is, and what they can ask.
1: I don't think it's going to be a signing that we see this week. I think we're going to see a trade. I've, I've got that feeling in my bones that it's going to be a trade. And there have been some ideas that were put out there uh i want to ask you about ken rosenthal writing about salvador perez and and that angle now before you laugh it off Mm -hmm. i think there might be some merit to it next off season because if let's say we go to the 2023 season gym And the White Sox finish at 500. And one of the excuses that they come up with is that nobody stepped up to replace Jose Bray's leadership. We need a veteran leader in the clubhouse, right? Let's say that excuse comes up. Well, then obviously Salvador Perez is going to be a target because Pedro Grafal needs a guy. He needs an ally on the player side in that clubhouse right now. He doesn't have any allies in the clubhouse. He's got to have to make new friends, And uh, I I could see that happening next year, not so much this year, but I also want it to kind of happen now just for the chaos it would bring and everybody's brain breaking and wondering what exactly is going on with the White Sox thinking. So I'm a bit undecided here, but what do you think of that particular rumor? You just want to see P. Knowles' head explode, right? I I really do. Him and Jordan (laughs) Lazowski, like just have complete meltdowns on Twitter freaking out. And uh, for me, I I just laugh and be like, yeah, he, he may not be a great defensive catcher, but you know what he does? He hits home runs and that's good enough for me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm looking at $20 million in 2024 and 20, 20, 22 million in 2025. And I don't get it. Like this is a case where the Royals, you know, they paid him to make up for in part for not paying him, early in his career, like he got a pretty bad deal or a bad advice from his agency. And I think the the Royals did him a little bit of a solid uh, by negotiating an extension earlier than they had to kind of make up for how little he was making. Uh, it was kind of like the Ozzy Albies uh, deal before Ozzy Albies became kind of the poster boy for... Signing a deal with agents that might be fired uh, just so the agents could get paid. You would seem to be inheriting uh, the worst part of the contract just as he's like proving that like he might be getting up there in years. And to go from one 30-something catcher who's making $18 million, to another 30-something catcher that's made $20 million, And And, uh, you know, you mentioned Jose Abreu's leadership. And, you know, I guess you could call it a hot take, I suppose. But just like, was Jose Abreu a great leader? Like... Not a bad leader, like not like I don't think he was a, you know, a negative presence or anything like that. But like just when you look at the way last year went and like, how would it look if Abreu weren't there? Like how much more disappointing could it be? And maybe, you know, there's a bit of a mutiny or something like that against La Russa, or maybe there's like a lot of quotes going on, but just like. Last year was like I don't know if there's a detectable presence, you know, for a Brayu, you know, being there. So that's not something I'm particularly concerned about. He strikes me as Paul Konerko like in the sense that like he led by example, but it takes players who are healthy or have enough initiative to follow that example, and uh, also you know in the case of like you know, Andrew Vaughn in the outfield, you know, it takes uh, management putting players in position to succeed uh, as well. And on that front, like the White Sox cannot follow Abreu's example uh, because Abreu was, you know, already there. He was was already there, fully formed as a pro in the position he needed to play. And uh, that's something that didn't really transfer to other players. So, yeah, I can't really see that. It just struck me as like a something rosenthal was thinking and he wrote a quick paragraph and then he kind of undermined it with next two paragraphs saying well he's paid a lot and the royals won't even entertain it and uh perez would have uh, a no trade clause anyway so it, it was a strange few paragraphs he wrote and i didn't really understand the purpose of it he just wants us to talk about this and i appreciate that from ken rosenthal let's let's throw out
1: the really yeah. weird ideas and that that is right up there it's right up there the <laughs> weird ideas
2: I saw you alluding to some uh, Lucas G trade ideas. You wouldn't quote tweet,ing because uh, <laughs> I, I missed some uh, of the underbelly of White Sox Twitter. I could not find it. So, you know, I did a brief search and I thought like, well, why am I even searching this? So I did not.
1: It, it wasn't a trade idea. What it was is that someone was complaining that currently Lucas G right now is doing some charitable work in the Dominican Republic. And they were complaining that he was spending time helping a charity clean up the ocean in the Dominican Republic, and not in a pitching lab or in the gym working out and trying to get better.
2: Oh, oh yeah, like yeah. Whenever the president goes on vacation.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I saw it once in my timeline. I got rid of it from my timeline. It kept popping back up in my timeline, and that's when I was requesting people to not retweet that or quote. To okay. Me. The Lucas Giolito trade idea, though, as you mentioned, came from ESPN. Mm-hmm. As they were, a couple of writers were trying to bounce ideas of like, all right, here's some guys that we think could be moved. Let's come up with some trade possibilities. And one possibility was trading Lucas Giolito to Tampa Bay in a deal that would involve second baseman Brandon Lau. Yeah. That one I saw. That one I don't hate, but we talked about the lack of starting pitching depth for the White Sox. And that to me feels like robbing peter to pay paul with your roster construction Mm -hmm. you have fixed second base that's great but now you have to go back into the starting pitching well and we just talked about this before the break and how expensive that is and if you don't have the budget for it what kind of quality pitcher are you bringing back to replace lucas giolito's spot
2: yeah giolito is getting clevenger money basically this this year Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a lot easier to tolerate when you first saw his figure like Oh, $10 million for his final year of ARB after the year he's coming off of. I don't want to pay that. And then you see what uh, Matthew Boyd signs for that money and you realize like, oh, yeah, that's that's fine. That's acceptable. So, yeah, I agree that it just it would take it would have to be involved in like a chain of trades to where like it reminds me a little bit of the 2007 offseason where they traded uh, Brandon McCarthy for John Danks and they got Gavin Floyd and they kind of made a couple moves and. It, ultimately they bolstered their pitching staff for 08, but 07 was like a secret rebuilding year or a step back. And I think like trading Giolito would take like that kind of move, like, or kind of sequence of moves to where like, okay, you're, you're, you're absorbing a blow and it might be too much to overcome in uh, 2023, but maybe come 2024, all of a sudden you have six starters for five spots if, if players finish their development. So that's the one way I can see trading Giolito, but for a high leverage year like this one, That would be an awfully uh, small needle to thread, I think, in order to get it just right. Uh, Balancing what you give up in Giolito versus what you might get with Brandon Lau uh, doing what he does at second base.
1: Are you aware of the White Sox Twitter food accounts? Yes. Okay. I find them to be hilarious, not so much for what they tweet, but the names that they have came up with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish that... uh, I should, I've always joked that I would come up with a White Sox Twitter food account to be my burner account to pick Rico Benny's breaded steak, Sammy. And uh, unfortunately someone stole that one. Mm. So it's off the board for me. I have to come up with another White Sox Twitter food burner account. But I bring this up because the White Sox Twitter food accounts have been tweeting for weeks that the White Sox have been trying to get something going along with the Minnesota Twins targeting Max Kepler. And what has caught my attention is that Bruce Levine of six seventy to score on the hit-and-run morning show uh, on the weekends that covers all things baseball for Chicago, both Cubs and White Sox, he has now mentioned that the White Sox are rumored to be targeting Max Kepler. So let's entertain this, Jim. Mm-hmm. Is Max Kepler a good target for the White Sox to address one of the corner outfield spots?
2: Uh, it reminds me of Nomar Mazzara. Oh, just like just like that's kind of player like, oh, he's so close to being good or he's had flashes in the past and we can capitalize on his upside. But that whole 2019 Twins team, I think, is proven to be kind of a fraud in terms of just the power output. Uh, looking at their home run totals that year, the Bomba squad, uh, not the Twins itself, but just the way they, they the way that lineup coincided with the ball like you had a. Uh, You know, Mitch Garver, uh, 31 homers in 93 games. You had, uh, you know, Kepler hitting 36 homers, 134 games. Nelson Cruz, 41 and 120. Uh, Eddie Rosario hit 32. Miguel Sano, 34 and 105 games. Like that's just an absurd amount of homers that nobody really has been able to duplicate. So when it comes to guys whose careers are built around that one season, like Eddie Rosario, 32 homers, 137 games. Since then, let me total up here. He's hit 32 homers in 248 games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, Any any anybody whose career is built around 2019, especially if they played in Minnesota, I just don't really buy.
1: Yeah, Kepler hit 36 home runs in 2019. and the following three seasons with the Twins, he has hit 37 home runs. And the thing about Kepler is that in his eight years with the Minnesota Twins, and it's been eight seasons with the Twins, he has only had two above-average Major League seasons in 2019 and in the shortened 2020 season. He is a below-league average hitter. He plays pretty good defense, so that's why his war in usually is hovering around two. So he's a two-war type of outfielder, that the White Sox are targeting here. And looking at his remaining contract, his base salary for 2023 is $8.5 million. So go back to the $171 million total that I mentioned. If they added Kepler, they're going to be right near the $180 million mark. For the 2024 season, it's $10 million, but it comes it's a club option with a $1 million buyout. The money and the type of player that he is, I know that I make fun of the food Twitter accounts. I think this is logically a target for the White Sox. I'm not thrilled about it, but when you add everything up and the types of players that they have added in the past, Jim, especially via trade, I think this one's got some legs to it.
2: Yeah, it's... Unfortunately, I think, just (laughs) they like to... uh... Uh, try to solve right field in two clever ways, whether it's like getting John Jay because he's Manny Machado's uh, buddy or getting Nomar Mazzara because he's on the cusp of putting it all together. You know, just the you know, Adam Eaton coming off uh, a year where uh, uh, or, or looking like he's at the end of the line and thinking they can get something out of him. Like Kepler last year, what was weird about him is that before, like his shortcomings were basically because he was a platoon bat and the Twins would play him maybe a little bit too often against lefties. They didn't really have like a caddy, or they wanted to try to get him to tough through um, some left-handed struggles to become a complete outfielder, and he just got further and further away from it. Last year, he hit lefties better than righties, but he was awful against righties. 677 OPS against lefties, uh, 662 against righties. So if he's lost the ability to hit righties... Then you have basically a defensive replacement is what he is, which he might be better than, but that's kind of what he last showed with the twins. Again, he's a two, he's been a two war outfielder,
1: two war for eight and a half million dollars in 2023. That's what the projections are looking at with a slugging percentage below 400. So he wouldn't even be helping in the power category Mm -hmm. for the White Sox. I, I, again, Jim and I have just broken this down. Uh, there's going to be a lot of blogs if, if this trade were to happen. Be like, well, he hit 36 home runs in 2019, yeah, and Yoan Makata was awesome in 2019, and he hasn't been awesome since then. Uh, offensively, uh, the bouncy ball helped Max Kepler a, a great deal. He's been a below league average hitter for most of his career, so I, I think it only makes sense logically for the White Sox because it's a, as you mentioned, it's a type of player they have targeted, and the money does make sense. Other trade ideas that you're pondering around in your head that you could see the White Sox going after, maybe not particular players, but is there any situations out there as far as teams or positions that you think the White Sox could make a deal?
2: Well, you know, I've liked Brian Reynolds for a couple of years now with just how he might fit Mm -hmm. and how he might uh, become too expensive by the time the Pirates are getting good. So like I was... Excited and then dismayed that he he made his uh, uh, request to be traded from the Pirates known because uh, uh, now every team wants to get in on it, whereas I was like, oh, it'd be a good fit for like, yeah, send, send him Aloy Jimenez, uh, watch Aloy Jimenez try to play left field at PNC Park, uh, which uh, <laughs> would be pretty rough out there. But alas, uh, the, the one trade market I can see maybe developing in the White Sox favor because it's kind of established what the market rate is, is closer. Um, you know, we saw Edwin Diaz sign for, or Diaz, I always want to say Diaz. Uh, Edwin Diaz signed for uh, five and one hundred and two, and was it Chris Martin signed for two and seventeen? I think. Yeah. So some yeah. guys with either. Closer, you know, histories or closer ish histories are signing coming off the boards a little bit. And, you know, with uh, Hendricks making two and twenty nine million, uh, which would be guaranteed, whereas the White Sox can pay it oh, uh, that that fourth year over uh, 10 years because uh, the option doesn't vest if they keep them. That does seem like the market that is mature enough, I think, and established enough to where like teams know what they would have to give up uh to get Hendricks or somebody like him whereas like with Ketcher it's still a bit un- uncertain short yeah, especially anything in the infield right now with all the shortstops av- available we saw Colton Wong move um to the Mariners uh to your dismay I imagine but yeah I-, I think that's kind of the one trade that jumps out to me or the one area where the White Sox can deal from because we're seeing what the going rate is that trade between Milwaukee and Seattle confuses me
1: from a Milwaukee Brewers perspective. I totally get it from a Seattle perspective. And good for the Mariners. I mean, they've added Teoscar Hernandez and Cole Juan to their already very talented roster. I think they're having a very good offseason. For the Brewers here, uh, I don't know. Is Jesse Winkler good? I mean, I know he's hit really well in Milwaukee, but I don't think he could play in the outfield anymore. He's probably more of a DH Abraham Toro is one of these super utility guys and he's involved in another trade and the money's even like, you're not saving any money here by making this deal. So it really confuses me. It was, it was a direction by the brewers. I was not expecting them to go. And uh, yeah, it is to my dismay because now if the White Sox, do want to fix second base? There's some intriguing trade options out there but it may be too difficult to make a move and then the remaining free agent second baseman I mean maybe we could talk ourselves into Adam Frazier I mean going back to the clearance rack
2: (laughs) well he was my uh, big free agent signing the White Sox would make in my in our uh, prediction so I would I I would be of uh, two minds with that signing like haha I got it right oh man my cynicism has uh, manifested itself. Uh, yeah, the Brewers, you know, the one thing that keeps me from like panning that trade is just that they're pretty good at stitching together lineups with unimpressive players or, uh, you know, short of name brand. Um, you know, when you look at the, just the the name recognition on the lineups, like they had Jace Peterson and and Willie Adamas and Tyrone Taylor and such, like guys you don't necessarily know. Hunter Renfro, they got some, some good mileage out of they, they manage to use these guys pretty well. So it is odd and it doesn't seem to like move their timetable at all or kind of it, it feels like uh, present money for present money without the talent being as good. But they have an eye for uh, using players or like we talked about just before, like putting players in position to succeed, not asking too much from them and help helping guide them along with like complimentary players. We'll see if it works out. Maybe
1: Winkler still has a, Another good season in that bat uh, to help out the Milwaukee Brewers. But it was a it was a trade I was not expecting. But I, I really like the deal from a Seattle Mariners perspective, and I like their offseason so far. So let's look at the free agent signings here and who we think could possibly sign this week. And there are two players that I do think we're going to see signed in the next couple of days, Jim. Aaron Judge and Justin Verlander. Those are the two big free agents that I think are going to land new deals from a Verlander perspective. My feeling is, is that, and he's doing a very good job of setting the stage for himself and, and leveraging between the Mets and the Dodgers. I, I think Verlander going to go to one of those teams. So let's say I'm right here and it's between the coast. Who do
2: you think would land Verlander? The Dodgers or Mets? Well, we went with Mets. I think was, that did. was the, the one, uh, Uh, free agent we agreed upon uh you uh treasy beefloaf and i we all had verlander going to the mets and i see no reason to switch from it i think like it's a little bit of a uh, a monty hall problem where like now it's down to two do you change it uh because you're supposed to uh the monty hall paradox Mm -hmm. but no in this case i'm sticking with verlander and the mets yeah me too i think it it's going to be a huge deal like three years
1: 120 plus million dollars and I do think he's going to sign for more than $40 million a season, get more than Jacob DeGrom, at least AAV-wise. And the Mets are going to have more than $80 million tied up to Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, but that's quite the one-two in their starting rotation. Supposedly, the rumor is that Aaron Judge has a nine-year offer on the table, Jim, and that takes him all the way to his age 39 season. Who do you think is crazy enough to throw down a nine-year contract for
2: Aaron Judge? I don't know. Like, nine years seems like it's not... You know, the Rangers would seem like maybe that kind of team, given the way they're spending, but Mm. uh, the money they've already spent and the risks they've already taken with certain players, like Semyon, I think, is on the older side for that kind of money, and then you have uh, DeGrom that we just talked about being a risk. Like, I don't know if there's another Rangers team that would spend like that, like just, the Giants seem like they would be, that's a lot of money to put into like a a guy in his late thirties in that park. Like, you know, if, if he's, you know, between covering ground in the, in a large outfield and trying to hit the ball over me, he's got power. The power should age, but just a lot of money to put into some, you know, a park that does not make hitting homers easy. So I don't know. I, I picked the Yankees just because it seemed like, you know, and still makes sense for him to be a Yankee, uh, and they still have the money. They theoretically have the spending power to make it happen. But nine—it doesn't seem like they were interested in nine years. I know that I want to say Joe Sheehan and others have written about like players that large not aging well. I don't know who gets into that uh, for nine years. Like I, I thought he might be another one of those like six-year deals that just you know, six years, 240, 250, something like that, just to try to, uh, maybe 250 is a little bit of a reach, but just that kind of, like we talked about DeGrom, just really maxing out the annual value, not caring so much about like, if you whiff at 25 million or whiff at 35 million, because it's a big whiff either way, and just trying to mitigate the risk of advancing into like past age 36. So yeah, I, I, I'm kind of drawn a blank in terms of who's a natural, uh, unless the Giants are just willing to pony that up in a way that's, I might not be expecting.
1: Yeah, I think he's going to sign with the San Francisco Giants. We'll see if it's actually for the nine years of the rumor, but it sounds like the Yankees are trying to keep it to seven years and aiming for like a $37.5 million AAV. So looking at it, like a seven year, $262.5 million contract offer coming from the Yankees. We'll see if that actually sticks, but. I'd be fascinated if he did sign for like $37.5 million a season for nine years. I mean, that's a nine-year, $337 million contract for a 31-year-old outfielder. After we saw what Manny Machado and Bryce Harper signed when they're in their (laughs) mid-20s free agency, signing huge contracts, and here's Judge. uh, If if he does sign a nine-year contract, it's still netting over $300 million in guaranteed money. That would be that would be a big surprise. But I do expect that these two, Aaron Judge and Justin Verlander, signing this week. Is there any other big free agents that you're expecting to sign?
2: It does seem like the shortstop market has to move, right? Trey Turner seems like he has the most traction, uh, is leading the way in terms of the most teams and most... Meetings and interests attached to him. So maybe I'll go with him to uh, start unlocking uh, the infielder movement.
1: And it sounds like the San Diego Padres are the ones that are hot and heavy for Trey Turner reporting a coming return. out of San Diego. A return. Yes. Uh, for those that don't remember, the Padres originally drafted Trey Turner and then they traded him in that same season. And then there was a new rule that you couldn't trade most recent draft picks. <laughs> uh, so the yeah. the Trey Turner rule uh, but yeah it'd be something else if, if Turner returned to San Diego and they've already had two in-person meetings with Turner that's the report coming out of San Diego the thinking is is to have him play second base and when uh, Tatis Jr. returns from his suspension to move him out to left field and Jake Cronenworth who has been the second baseman for the San Diego Padres would move over to first base in that particular situation. Uh, so pretty fascinating here. And uh, it'll be more a jealousy or envy, I should say, from myself if the San Diego Padre sign Trey Turner because they continue. They would be continuing to land these big free agents while we're still talking about, like, Mike Clevenger and Max Kepler. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, come on. How is this fair? How is this fair? Uh, so Trey Turner makes a lot of sense. Pete Abraham out of Boston of the Boston globe is reporting that the Boston Red Sox have yet to make a competitive offer to Xander Bogarts. And it sounds like Xander Bogarts process is pretty far along now that the mm. Boston Red Sox may be out of the race to bring back their shortstop, uh, which would be pretty fascinating. So I, I think you could be right here, Jim. We could see one or two of these shortstops signed this week.
2: Yeah, with Bogarts, I remember in our podcast we were talking about it, and I had Bogarts going to the Red Sox or back to the Red Sox, even though, like, part of me said, like, the Red Sox always drag their feet or always kind of make a. uh a slog out of re-signing their own players and let them go and make a mess of it, and everybody's unhappy, like John Lester and Mookie Betts, and just it, it tends to be just uh, unimpressive when it comes to the locals, just about how much they value their own players and how much they like seem to express enthusiasm over the players who are already, you know, on the roster. So yeah, that was when we, I had a reservation about that. I thought Bogarts made sense just in terms of price and fit and everything he does well with the red Sox, and you should continue to do well with the red Sox. but yeah i did have that nagging feeling in terms of like that would count that would require the red Sox to actually like one of their players to pay them uh what the market would demand
1: and now they have rafael devers to worry about as he will be a free agent yeah next season which now pivots over to the trade market i, I don't think the red Sox end up trading rafael devers they could if they think negotiations are not going to go well they could just hold on to him until the trade deadline and see how the first half of the season plays out. But it, the big domino as far as the next trade here might be Oakley catcher, Sean Murphy and Mark FineSand of MLB.com has been reporting late Sunday that it appears that Oakland is close to a trade. The Atlanta Braves at first were thought of as one of the leading contenders. The Braves are not acquiring Sean Murphy per a source The leading contenders for Sean Murphy is the St. Louis Cardinals, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland guardians. Sean Murphy to Cleveland makes a ton of sense. Jim. Mm -hmm. Cleveland is well stocked when it comes to prospects, especially types of prospects that Oakland has coveted in the past. Let's play out this scenario that Cleveland makes his big deal. The defending American league champions add Sean Murphy to their lineup how could that impact the division outlook at 2023
2: it would be uh, i think one of the more significant sec- moves that could be made position upgrades year to year that we're talking with hedges and luke Maley last year looking at their what they got from catching austin hedges 105 games 338 338 plate appearances 42 ops plus Uh, Bad 163 slugged 248. Uh, I know he's great working with pitchers, but like that's a backup catcher profile Uh, and and, and basically begging to be uh, somebody who catches 60 games a year or 50 versus 105. So, yeah, I remember last year when Matt Olson was on the trade block and... I thought he made a lot of sense for the Guardians. The Braves ended up getting him and extending him. But like I had a fear like, oh, no, yeah, Matt Olson is perfect for them. And he would have been like, you know, Josh Naylor was OK, but Josh Naylor could have also DH because DH was a mess for them uh, with Fran Mil Reyes uh, kind of flaming out in them. So I think I get the same feeling from Murphy like, oh, no, please don't do it. Go elsewhere. Go to St. Louis or something like that, just because it is that kind of move that would make basically just like super solve. That position and, and one of the few positions I think of need for them because they seem to have some other guys finally taking root in that lineup and, and providing stability that they didn't really have in like the last couple of years of the uh, Francisco Lindor era.
1: Yes. And St. Louis makes a ton of sense as well. And St. Louis, man, if they could pull this trade off, kudos to that front office because in recent years, getting Paul Goldschmidt via trade and getting Nolan Arenado via trade. If they get Sean Murphy gem, I mean, they are they are the masters in getting these trades done and key parts of their infield acquired via trade. So, uh, I think it's between St. Louis and Cleveland for the Sean Murphy market. Any other
2: blockbuster trades that you that you foresee could happen this week? Oh, uh, the the Reynolds one I thought was a bit of a It seems like he makes so much sense for so many teams. Being a switch hitter who can cover center, like I don't think he's a great center fielder. Like if he White Sox somehow acquired him, he would be right or left, and and then if you know maybe cover center if Luis Robert gets hurt. Um, But yeah, I think so many teams can you know make the same case for him that. I can imagine like right now the Pirates are maintaining a, you know, maintaining their leverage saying that we don't have to deal him. We're not going to, we plan on, you know, keeping him, but I could see the offers coming in pretty hot to where like, um, cause the outfield markets kind of weak uh, after Aaron judge, like there's not a whole lot of high upside guys, you know, some, some guys who can fill roster spots, but like Jock Peterson accepted the qualifying offer. And I think the, the, the giants extended the qualifying offer because the high upside offer Outfield talent was so thin uh, that they felt like it was worth it, just you know, versus losing him uh, and, and not getting compensation attached to a team that is really pursuing that kind of power. So, I could see Reynolds moving, even if the Pirates are maintaining that ground. But it might take a little bit of time for that uh, market to manifest because I, I, I don't know if they counted on that being public, and they might want to try to like get more teams involved to 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 drive up the price. I
1: think they will like let's say if Aaron judge on Tuesday signs with the San Francisco Giants, I think the New York Yankees are calling and they have made number of trades in the past, the Yankees and pirates. And that's who I could foresee acquiring Brian Reynolds would be the New York Yankees as their solution in replacing Aaron judge. But I think that requires Aaron judge to sign before the market really heats up for Brian Reynolds. So I, I do like that idea. And I think after Sean Murphy, it makes the most sense that Brian Reynolds would be the next big name to possibly move. Will it happen during the trade? Or I should say, will it happen during the winter meetings? We'll see. But so much happens in these three days here. And last time it was held at San Diego Monday, Steven Strasburg signs his contract Tuesday. Garrett Cole signs his contract Wednesday, Anthony Rendon signs his contract. There is huge breaking news that had ripple effects across Major League Baseball last time was held at San Diego, and maybe there'll be more breaking news. And hopefully the White Sox will have breaking news as well during this week. So when it comes to the Sox Machine podcast schedule, be flexible with us. When there is breaking news, we'll have the emergency podcast that Jim and I will fire off to capture as far as the activity. And we'll have a lot of content coming on SoxMachine.com. So while you're at work and you have one tab on Twitter, you have one tab to B Trade Rumors, make sure you have the Sox Machine tab as well to chat with others in the comments section when news is starting to flow in or even the rumors as well, that get posted in the comments section. And also follow us on Twitter. We're at socksmachine, and I'm at, at SoxMachine underscore Josh. But that will do it for this preview episode of the Sox Machine podcast of this year's Winter Meetings. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. You can also help support us at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content, they get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.